Hey, good morning, everybody. How's it going? Good. Uh, happy September. I hope you enjoyed your Labor Day weekend. I know I did. Um, you know, I was reading a post uh, the other day uh, by a woman who calls herself debt hater. I don't know what that means. I think it probably has something to do that she about her working in personal finance. And I'm wondering if any of you might be able to relate to what she writes. This is what she writes. She wrote, Ladies and gentlemen of the personal finance blogosphere, I hate working. I hate working. I, all caps, hate it. I always have. My first job, I was a camp counselor in this camp run by Brooklyn College. The kids basically took classes like arts, comic drawing, swimming lessons, and remedial math, and we went on field trips to places like the Bronx Zoo. It was more summer school than camp. Anyway, I was one of the high school students that they hired to take kids from class to class, watch them during lunch, and supervise them on, on field trips. It was fun. I was so nervous my first day, and by the time I got home, I was jazzed to go back the next day. I had my favorite kids and teachers, and I enjoyed being outdoors and earning money. That feeling lasted the first two weeks. Then the alarm clock went off, and I'd lie in bed wondering what would happen if I just didn't show up for work. This pattern repeated itself throughout my entire working life. I'd be all jazzed for a new opportunity or job for about a week, a month, three months, maybe even six months, but eventually the alarm clock goes off and I lie in bed thinking of reasons to call in sick. Naive, silly child that I was. But I still hate working. I think I hate working because I know I have to work. As in, there ain't no trust fund. I'm not working because it's stimulating, because I'm contributing to society. I'm working because I have to eat, because I don't want to be homeless, because I don't own anything, so I owe everyone. I think if I was wealthy and knew I could waste six weeks watching paternity tests on Maury and still be as rich and comfortable, then I think I would love to work. Now, how many of you can relate in any sense to what debt hater is feeling? A few? A few? New jobs, new schools, new babies, new relationships, they are all so exciting in the beginning. They all seem to promise such fulfillment, such life. But after a while, in some way or another, they often, if not always, feel like work. Last week, we looked at the design for work. That work was created to connect us to God, to our true nature, and give us the ability to love the people around us in practical ways. Work was actually part of paradise. We saw that. And we said we need it to be fulfilled, so why do we hate it sometimes? What happened? Today we're going to look at why sometimes we hate work. In week two of our series, Work, the Prestige, Pain, and Promise of a Job to Do. And to do that, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week, we looked at the first two chapters of the Bible that describe the origins and the good purpose of work. And this week, we're going to look at where it all went wrong. Excited about that? (laughs) Woo! (laughs) So let me read the story, and we'll jump into it. And and credit to Tim Keller and Catherine Leary Alsford. They wrote a really great book, uh, Every Good Endeavor, which I've taken so many ideas from, I don't know if any of the ideas today are my own, so... I'd rather give them credit, but if there's something you don't like, that was probably me, just so you know. 
All right, Genesis chapter 3, the first 19 verses. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So the Lord said to the serpent, I'm cutting ahead just a little bit, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit of the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust you will return. Now, what we just read here is what's commonly referred to as the fall of humanity. I feel like that's sort of a short-changing type of term here. It's a description of the entrance of sin into paradise and what results. And what we see results is much bigger than something that just affects humanity. It affects all of creation. There was a philosopher, Al Walters, he wrote this about what's commonly called uh, the fall of humanity. He wrote, the Bible teaches plain that Adam and Eve's fall into sin was not just an isolated act of disobedience, but an event of catastrophic significance for creation as a whole. So what we see in this story is that uh, the entrance of sin into the world or the fall of humanity actually affects everything in creation. It affects the way things grow. It affects how food is produced. It affects every area uh, of all of creation. And the story presented in the Bible is that while God blessed work to be a, a glorious use of our gifts, and his resources to prosper the world, it's now also cursed because of humankind's fall. Work exists now in a world sustained by God, but disordered by sin. And so there are these tremor effects that happen that affect everything uh, around the event of the fall of humanity or the entrance of sin into the world, and it affects even how we work. And what I'm suggesting today, that this is a big reason that sometimes we hate work. This is a big reason my work isn't always easy or fulfilling or even close sometimes. And so work, which is still good and is meant for good, becomes hard. Why? Well, work is hard. Here's one reason. Because we feel like we're doing a bad job. This is mine right here. This in some ways, is the story of my life, of entire seasons of my lives, of several days a week. 
how much time, how many hours, how many sleepless nights have I spent worrying about whether I'm doing a good enough job? That sermon could have been much better. (laughs) That show, when I used to do improv, could have been a lot funnier. I could have helped that person a lot more. I could have handled that situation better. That one I've said many a times. And you know what the story of Genesis tells us about those types of thoughts? You're better than you think. No, it doesn't tell us that. You've got what it takes. You'll get them next time. No, it doesn't say that either. Uh, The things that got in your way now that you know them won't be able to stop you again. No. The story of Genesis says, you're right. More could have been accomplished. Things could have turned out better. People should have been laughing and laughing and laughing at your show. But it wasn't, it didn't, and they weren't. You're right, it could have been better. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your lives. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground. What this says is that work isn't bad. It's just affected. It's been corrupted in some sense. What should be easy and light is now often difficult and toilsome. All work from giving birth, which is actually referred to as labor, to programming a computer, to tilling the ground will not be easy. In other words, work, even when it bears fruit, in some sense is always painful, often miscarries, and sometimes maybe even kills us. And I think this is one reason we hate work. We hate it because it seems, and it is true, that We work so hard and often because of our own limitations, because of the limitations of the environment around us, we're not as successful as we feel like and actually we should be. We toil, but we get thorns and thistles. We sweat, but we don't see equal returns for our efforts. And what this means is that we'll be able to, in our lives, envision far more than we can ever actually accomplish. How's that sound? And so we feel like we're failing, like we're doing a bad job, and quite possibly we are. (laughs) Big pick-me-up here, right? We're going to get someone better, somewhere better, I promise. You know, most people achieve very few goals that they actually set for themselves in their lifetime. And and those that do, if you talk to them, they'll usually tell you they wanted to accomplish more. There's a classic play uh, that focuses on the life of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, a famous composer. And there's two main characters in it. One is this guy named Solieri. Solieri has all the fame in the world. He's recognized, he's well-paid, he's rich. He's like a music superstar of his day, right? But he's frustrated Because he knows that what he's producing is subpar. It's missing something. And then there's this braggadocious jerk named Mozart who has the gift of genius in music. And everyone hates him, including music critics, including the audiences of the day. So he's rejected and poor 
and disliked. Now, usually, whatever situation you're in, you look at the other person, you wish that was you. You wish you had money, success, fame. You wish you had the gift of genius. And what Genesis tells us is that you should expect to be regularly frustrated in your work, even though you might be in the right place. And this is the part of the experience of work, frustration, disappointment, not achieving as much as you'd hope. So you might be thinking right now, wow, thanks, Brad. <laughs> thanks for psyching me up to go back to work tomorrow. Thanks for getting me all hyped up to invest more time in my kids or volunteer in the church. Nice work. Um, if this is true, why not apply the same approach that traditionally has worked for my approach to the beloved Chicago Cubs? If you have low expectations, you'll never be disappointed. But don't we have dreams of actually impacting and changing the world? And as a community, isn't part of our mission, part of our mission statement, seeking to make our great city even better? I would say yes, and yes we are. And the story of Genesis is that work has been frustrated, but it also gives a reason. And the reason we've hinted at here, it's the corruption of sin. But the corruption's not complete God's intention for our work is still the flourishing of our world. It's still to bless and encourage and love the people around us practically. And while this passage lets us know that there will be thorns and thistles, it also says you will eat the plants of the field. Work will still bear fruit. It's just that work will be full of tension. It'll be both frustrating and fulfilling. And sometimes, and just often enough, Human work gives us a glimpse of the beauty and the genius that might have been routine in all of our work were it not for the corrupting influence of sin. You know, there's a passage in the Bible that has been really important to our church over the years. It's Hebrews 11. Some people call it the Hall of Faith. It's this list of all the great heroes of faith throughout uh, the history of the Bible. It's got people in there uh, who parted the Red Sea. It's got people in there who healed uh, people, who led whole nations, who saw amazing, amazing things. But it has this line in there. It says, they all went to, I'm paraphrasing, they all went to their grave without seeing everything that they hoped. There's a tension in this life that we live in. We see these amazing breakthroughs. They happen. We can hope for them. We pray for them. We have faith for them. But we also live in the midst of a lot of brokenness. And there is this element where there will probably be things in your life that you're hoping for that you may not see. But you will eat fruit. You will taste heaven on earth. There will be breakthroughs. And I think, if anything in this sermon, I want you going away feeling uh, hopeful that when things aren't working, sometimes that doesn't mean that anything's wrong. That's just part of the human experience of life. So don't give up. Don't quit. Because in some senses, that's normal. We live in a broken age where the power of God is breaking in and renewing everything. But we still have to deal with and live with the things, the thorns and the thistles. So work is hard because we can't accomplish all that we would like. It's also hard because we feel like bad people. You know, one thing that 
sin did as it entered the world is that it immediately made us aware of our imperfections or our vulnerabilities. And our reaction was to just try and hide all of this from other people. So in verse 7 it says, Then the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. We're now acutely aware of our deficiencies. And we hide ourselves from each other and from God. It's not just that maybe we've made mistakes, and certainly we all have. It's not just that we have weaknesses and imperfections, and certainly we all do. But we internalize these things, and they impact our sense of self-worth, our identity. And we begin to look, up, look for ways to cover up our shortcomings, to hide them. Why? Well, there's also this problem of the shame of sin. Work is one of the primary ways that we try and assert a sense of self-worth. When we use work to define ourselves, when we count on it to make us feel okay about ourselves, then we're doing actually a dangerous thing. And work was given to us, we saw last week, so that we could bring out the wonders of the created order and serve the basic needs of our neighbors, to love the people around us. But... When we need work to validate ourselves, to make us feel okay, or hope in our jobs to provide a reason not to feel ashamed or worthless, then we kind of start to pervert it. And instead of providing a way to be creative and love other people, work can become a way to prove something. Sound familiar? And as a result, there's a shift from work as sort of grateful, caring for our gifts, stewardship of what God's giving us to neurotic fabrication of our self-worth in the extreme. We try to make a name for ourselves, validate ourselves, hurt ourselves without realizing it. And this is why some of us aren't enjoying work too much right now. Uh, David Brooks wrote in the New York Times about an online discussion he had with Stanford students and why some of them are choosing the career paths that they're choosing. And he wrote, many of these students seem to have a blinkered view of their options. There's, cr uh, there's crass but affluent investment banking. There's the poor but noble nonprofit world. And then there's the world of high-tech startups, which magically provides money and coolness simultaneously. But there was little interest or awareness of things like the ministry, the military, the academy, government service, or the zillion of other sectors. Furthermore, few students showed any interest in working for a company that actually makes products. And he went on to say, community service has become a patch for morality. Many people today have not been given vocabularies to talk about what virtue is, what character consists of and in which way excellence lies. So they just talk about community service. In whatever field you go into, you will face greed, frustration, failure. You may find yourself challenged by depression, alcoholism, infidelity, your own stupidity and self-indulgence. Furthermore, around what ultimate purpose should your life revolve? Are you capable of heroic self-sacrifice or is life just a series of achievement hoops? You can devote your life to community service and be a total schmuck. You can spend your life on Wall Street and be a hero. Understanding heroism and schmuckdom requires fewer Excel spreadsheets and more Dostoevsky and the Book of Job. 
Now, he talks in some heady types of language. Um, that's his audience. And I'm they're not saying there's no heady people here, but I think he's trying to say two things. First, he's looking at college students, and I know he tends to sit over here. So he's looking at college students uh, who do not choose work that actually fits their abilities or their talents or their capacities, but rather choose work that fits within their, his words, not mine, limited imagination of how they can boost their own self-image. Just think about, especially if you're just getting started. The second point is that work isn't meant to cover ourselves. And we kind of get that on some level, right? But what we do then is sort of add another fig leaf of quote-unquote service. But what I think the author is trying to get at is that somehow we've lost our direction or a sense of compass or a sense of meaning or purpose and worth that we're trying to rediscover through work and service. But it's not working. My first point is that we can never do as much as we think that we should. The fig leaves are always too small. There are always too many thorns, too many bristles, too many missed expectations. And if that's the case, then work will never be able to provide a good basis for our identities either. We can never do enough to overcome our shame, so we end up hating work as we sense we're failing there and then feel bad about ourselves because of it. But that's not all. Work is also hard because we trust the wrong things. Now, I know I'm, I'm giving you this, 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 you know, this is a three-part ser- sermon series. The first one was how awesome work is and how important it is and how it can change your life and how we need a purpose, right? This week is why does it feel bad? So I'm giving you sort of some reasons. So hang in there. And if anything, let it help you know that you're not weird or broken to feel some of these things. We trust the wrong things. There might be areas of growth, but you're in, the, you're in a big boat with a lot of other people. Now, let's remember that we set up the backdrop of our story today. God provides everything that humanity needs, good relationships, good work, plenty of resources, a, secu- a sense of security and peace. Now, the essential lie of the fall of humanity was that God wasn't good that he wouldn't provide those things, that all the things that he had provided were a cover for his desire to keep us in the dark and control us. In essence, God wasn't actually good. He had ulterior motives, and we shouldn't trust him. So in verse 4, it says, you'll not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. God's trying to control you. He's trying to hide good things from you. So our ancestors said, Forget trusting God. We'll find out what can really be trustworthy. And we tried a lot of things. That thing will provide good relationships, good work, plenty of resources, a sense of security, peace. So ever since, we take good things and we make, it, make them the thing. We ask them to do what they aren't designed to do and then wonder why we're not happy. And work is a perfect example of this. We ask it to help us be attractive to a mate. We ask it to give us meaning. We ask it to provide for our needs. We ask it to give us a sense of security. We ask it to give us peace. We worship it. Now, work is a good thing given to us from God. He actually, as we've seen, uses it to provide many of those things. But it's fickle. 
It's full of thorns and bristles. And when we use it to measure our self-worth, there's always more that we could have, should have accomplished. And if we look to it to communicate our value, it will condemn us every time. So if work becomes a God in our lives instead of a gift, if it becomes what we look to to provide good relationships, meaning plenty of resources, a sense of security, peace, it will drive us. And we'll end up sacrificing other good things to it, like family and health and relationships. And ultimately, it will still say you didn't do enough. That's the lie of sin. Namely, we don't need God, but we can find something else to lead us to good relationships, meaning, security, and peace. But work can't do this. So we hate it because we believe that it promises to, but isn't following through. But it doesn't have to be this way. Work can be light and easy again because we can trust God again. Now, before I go any further, let me say, if you hate your job or the work that you're doing, it doesn't mean you aren't trusting God. I'm not saying that. It may be that you have a terrible work environment (laughs) where your boss or the people around you are both dealing with the first two things we talked about. They're trying to fill their own insecurities through work. They feel like they're failing and not doing enough, and it comes out on you or the environment you work in. So there's a lot of backbiting or competitiveness or even abuse. If you're experiencing all that, experiencing all that, I'm definitely not saying it's because you don't trust God enough. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is there's an opportunity here that can help us have focus in different types of situations. You may need to leave where you are. Maybe you need a different job. That might be the valid next step, but this can help us keep a clear head. It can help us focus as we learn and consider, do we need to change? Does the environment need to change? Or does my job need to change? And what I'm suggesting is that we hold on to hope and that we begin by trusting that work is supposed to be good. It's supposed to be a gift. And God wants it to be a blessing in your life. And he is committed to seeing that become a reality. And that's all I'm asking or suggesting that um, you do this week. And here's how we can know that he's committed in this way. If you look in this story, God himself prophesies. He talks of the future and about the end of the corruption, shame, and lie of sin. So God says to the servant, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And here God prophesies, he looks into the future, that there will be a struggle between the offspring of the woman and the serpent. And the serpent, if you haven't figured it out, represents Satan. And Satan will strike the heel of her offspring, but her offspring will crush his head. And this is a prophecy or a picture of the coming of Jesus into the world and his death striking at his heel and his resurrection crushing of the head of the serpent. And it's here that our hope lies. It's here that all of the corrupting forces and influences of sin are dealt with. It's on the cross that shame is dealt with. They're put to death with Jesus. They're crushed. So we have the opportunity to trust him and the power of his resurrection and that that can enter our lives. 
And that can take away the shame of our failures and provide a new way for us to live. And this is what the heroes of faith that I mentioned earlier were hoping for and look forward to. It said, it says there, therefore, since, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, all the heroes of faith, um, the writer says, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Run with perseverance, i.e. work. But work looking to or trusting Jesus, who overcame Satan and the effects of sin. Why? Well, there's a reason. It's the power of the cross and what it releases in our lives. And don't kill me. This is what we're going to look at next week, very specifically, of how the cross can affect, empower, invigorate the work in our lives on a day-to-day basis and return work closer and closer to the blessing it was originally meant to be. All right? So come back next week, because I hate to leave you with all the bad news and just a little bit of good news, but not get as specific as I'd like, because we're limited on time. All right? Let's pray. Uh, God, this morning I think the prayer is just for hope. And I want to pray particularly for people who are really feeling uh, the effects of the things we talked about, feel like they're losing at work, um, feel like they're a bad person because things aren't going as they'd hoped. Um, I just pray this morning for a, a blessing and a gift of hope that that's not the way it has to stay and that your desire is not to leave us in that place, that it's good to be aware of the thorns and the thistles, but that's not the end of the story, and that's not where you stopped in our passage today. And you promised renewal. You promised the crushing of all of the effects of sin and the renewal of all of the areas of our lives, including work. So for every person that's tired today that can really relate to the reasons that people often hate work, I pray that you would just plant a seed of hope that things are meant to be different and that you are committed to seeing them turn around, so committed that it was part of the reason that you went to the cross. And I pray that as we reflect during the rest of the service, as we sing songs of worship and praise, that Holy Spirit, you would come. And that would be one of the things you do for the people who need it, for the people who are working really hard, but feeling those other things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you're on our worship